Welcome to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for two, or Thursday, February 8th, 2024. I'm your reader, Mary Francis, and you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Taking a look at the front page of the Courier today, there's a large photo. Biggest article is Activists Rally Against Proposal, Iowa House Legislation. Photo shows Transgender rights advocates protesting Tuesday at the Capitol after a subcommittee of Iowa House members advanced a proposal by Governor Kim Reynolds that would define man and woman in state law. And it shows a number of people holding signs um, that says we have a right to exist. Trans plus queer rights equal human rights. Many fronts, one struggle. Um, People with their fists in the air chanting. And the copy reads, Transgender and civil rights advocates and their allies packed a committee room and hallway for the second time in as many weeks to voice opposition to legislation they decried is unconstitutional and blatantly discriminatory. Activists stomped, shouted, and chanted profanities and, quote, trans rights or human rights, unquote, outside a committee room Tuesday in vehement opposition to a proposal by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds that they say would erase transgender Iowans from state code. House Study Bill 649 would define man and woman in state law and require transgender Iowans to note both their pre- and post-transition genders on their driver's license. The bill was later amended by the House Education Committee to remove the driver's license requirement. Changes would still be required to be noted on a birth certificate. Quote, I can't see any other purpose than discrimination, unquote, said Representative Sharon Steckman, Democrat of Mason City, who voted against the bill. Quote, I am appalled that the governor would put forth such a discriminatory bill targeting 0.29% of our Iowa population, Steckman said. It's a sad day for Iowa. We're going backward. The House Education Committee voted Tuesday in a 15 to 8 party line vote to advance the bill for debate and a vote by the full House. Democrats opposed the bill. House Democrats requested a public hearing on the bill to allow Iowans to voice their concerns about it before heading to a vote on the House floor. Iowa Education Committee Chairman Skyler Wheeler, Republican of Hull, said House Republicans will work to accommodate the request. Reynolds, in a statement last week, called the legislation, quote, common sense and said it protects women's spaces and rights. She compared it to a state law passed in 2022 that prohibits transgender girls and women from competing in girls' and women's athletics. Women and men are not identical, Reynolds' legislative liaison Molly Severn told lawmakers, echoing the governor. Quote, they possess unique biological differences. That's not controversial. It's common sense. It's unfortunate that defining a woman in code has become necessary to protect spaces for women's health, safety, and privacy that are being threatened, like domestic violence shelters and rape crisis centers. Steckman questioned whether domestic violence shelters in the state are experiencing problems accommodating cisgender and transgender women. Opponents note, just as with school bathrooms and locker rooms, many institutions have shown it's possible to provide facilities that accommodate cisgender people whose gender identity corresponds with their sex at birth, and transgender people. 
They say the bill's use of pro-segregation language should raise alarm. Reynolds' bill echoes language associated with the 1896 U.S. Supreme Court decision in the case of Plessy v. Ferguson, which declared segregation on the basis of race to be legal. The governor's bill says the term equal does not mean same or identical, and that, quote, separate accommodations are not inherently unequal, and mentions prisons, domestic violence shelters, locker rooms, restrooms, and rape crisis centers as places where people may need to be separated based on their sex assigned at birth. Here we are repeating and not learning from history, said Connie Ryan, executive director of the Interfaith Alliance of Iowa Action Fund. Separate but equal is never equal, she continued. The bill comes a week after hundreds of transgender Iowans and LGBTQ and civil rights advocates and allies flocked to the Capitol to protest a bill that would have changed the way transgender Iowans are protected under the Iowa Civil Rights Act. The, the legislative proposal failed to advance. Reynolds introduced new legislation, she said, recognizes the biological differences between men and women. Opponents, including the ACLU of Iowa, said the bill would have wide-ranging implications, including requiring changes to the way Iowa collects public health data and offers anti-discrimination protections. Transgender Iowans said the legislation, before it was amended, would require them to out themselves anywhere they have to present their ID. Quote, My community is terrified of the consequences that this bill will have for our lives, said Emma Denny, a transgender woman from Iowa City, to lawmakers. Her quote continues, Trans people already face overwhelming employment and housing discrimination in Iowa under existing law, and the governor's bill will open ourselves up to more violence anytime we have to show an identification, unquote. Denny drew comparisons between the bill's requirement and the pink triangles that were sewn onto the shirts of gay men in concentration camps in Nazi Germany. This is untenable, and we in Iowa will not stand for it, Denny said. The bill defines a female as, quote, a person whose biological reproductive system is developed to produce ova. And it says a male is, quote, a person whose biological reproductive system is developed to fertilize the ova of a female. The term woman or girl refers to a female, and the term man or boy refers to a male, the section continues. The bill would also prevent transgender Iowans who have had sex reassignment surgery from simply changing their sex on their birth certificate. HSB 649 would require a person's sex at birth to be listed along with any sex reassignment for people seeking to change their birth certificate. Other Republican-led states, including Florida, have enacted similar policies. LGBTQ and civil rights advocates said the bill is another broad attack on transgender Iowans. Quote, my transgender friends and family deserve to live in peace. My wife, being forced to have a different kind of identification than me, is completely unthinkable, said Clara Rainin of Iowa City. She is a better woman than I will ever be. She's more of a woman than I will ever be. And to think that she should be treated differently because, differently than me because she is transgender is unconscionable, unquote. Additionally, requiring government-funded or run domestic violence shelters and rape crisis centers to treat transgender women inconsistently with their gender identity 
would conflict with federal law that prohibits discrimination based on gender identity and put federal funds at risk, according to LGBTQ Advocacy Group 1 Iowa. Patty Alexander, a retired teacher from Indianola, spoke in favor of the bill. Quote, it's unfortunate that we must legislate reality, she said, but this is where we are today. This bill protects the public from irrational and radical behaviors that are harmful to society. It is obvious that biological sex is not a choice and cannot be changed. We can change our appearances, but we can't change our DNA. Please protect us from the immoral will of others, unquote. Courtney Collier, quoting scripture, said, quote, People can choose to live in their delusions and confusions in their own lives at home, but the rest of us should not be forced to join them, unquote. Daniel Breitbarth, representing Republican Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd, said the bill provides important clarification of state law to, quote, protect people's privacy, health, and safety, unquote. Kent Zimmerman of Perry said the bill overlooks the complexities and dynamics of the LGBTQ community, perpetuates discrimination, intolerance, prejudice, and violence. Quote, it undermines the principles of equality and inclusivity that we should strive to uphold, not erase, Zimmerman said. We are better than this. My son deserves better than this, and our children demand better than this, unquote. The Education Committee also voted to advance to the full House a bill that would prohibit schools from disciplining any teacher or student who refuses to use a student's preferred pronouns. That proposal, House File 2139, advanced on a 13 to 10 party line vote with two Republicans joining Democrats in opposition. The bill prohibits school districts and charter schools from taking disciplinary action against an employee, contractor, or student for not using the preferred names or pronouns of another employee, student, or contractor if it differs from their legal name or what appears on school records. Supporters of the legislation say the proposal is needed to protect educators and students freedom of speech and religion. Opponents said the legislation gives a green light for bullying. Democrats pointed out that last year, State House Republicans passed legislation that requires parents to notify educators about their approval of their child using a different name or pronoun and are now proposing legislation that would allow teachers to ignore that. Our next story from the front page, ceasefire resolution addressed at councils. Speakers in Cedar Falls, Waterloo, supported city's approval. City council members said nothing in response Monday to 11 people who emotionally argued that they should take up a resolution supporting a ceasefire in Palestine and Israel because it is, quote, a local issue. Mayor Danny Laudick, however, spoke and declared that hatred is not welcome, but government criticism is a right that he'll fight to protect. Quote, I wanted to make a very clear statement that we will stand for the commitment to combat anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab bigotry, anti-Semitism, and Islamophobia, said Laudick. He affirmed, quote, that right for you to be able to come here to present without feeling like there's going to be a retaliation, without feeling that there's going to be pushback. Part of that process is to have a chance to be able to voice those concerns, unquote. The citizenry addressed the issue during the public comment portion of the meeting, 
because the resolution was not on the agenda. A few council members reached after the meeting, reaffirmed no immediate plans to consider taking up the resolution previously endorsed by the Cedar Falls Human Rights Commission in a 6-1 vote. The proposed two-page resolution is in support of a permanent ceasefire in the Middle East conflict, along with the return of all hostages and the delivery of humanitarian aid. It also affirms, as the mayor stated, that the city is opposed to anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and anti-Arab actions. Zandra Escalada, one of the speakers, previously talked to the council about developing the resolution at its December 18th meeting. Escalada noted that, when first speaking, there was no text for such a resolution, and no local Iowa government had advocated for one. That has changed, and now there are several that have worked on and passed a resolution. Quote, a ceasefire resolution is not merely a symbolic gesture of solidarity with the Palestinian people, Escalada said. It puts real pressure on our government leaders to bring about legislation and political actions that could eventually lead to an immediate and permanent ceasefire in Gaza and the West Bank. And if you believe that our efforts would be better directed toward Joni Ernst, Chuck Grassley, and Ashley Hinson, and other representatives in Congress, I can assure you that folks have been calling them, emailing them, been at their doorstep, and pressuring them for a ceasefire since October 7th, and have never stopped, unquote. Meanwhile, the Waterloo City Council discussed potentially adopting the same resolution during a work session earlier Monday evening. During its regular meeting, six residents spoke about the proposed action. Only one of them was against the passage. Another session is expected, though there was little sign of support from the council. Quote, Those of us who are here to speak publicly are merely asking for our local government to do what our national government has not, to say clearly that we, like the World Court, see the violation of human rights being committed with this U.S. fortified assault on Gaza, said resident Shirley Whiteside to the Cedar Falls Council. Many, including Whiteside, referenced state legislation that is in the works to criminalize speaking out against, quote, Israel's slaughter in Gaza. If you were born Palestinian or Muslim, you are supporting terror. If you attend a Jewish Voices for Peace meeting, you are supporting terror. If you are a nonviolent activist, you are supporting terror, she said. Among the Cedar Falls speakers was Human Rights Commission Chairperson Sonia Bach. All spoke at length in favor of the resolution, including Aliyah Rahman of Waterloo. Quote, the ability to sleep at night and not wake up each morning, wondering if my friends in Palestine have been killed by bombs that my tax money paid for, is a basic quality of life issue for me, Raman said. Your constituents are not asking you to set or comment on international policy. We're simply asking you to pass along a message to our own government. Council member Aaron Hawbaker told the courier that he is, quote, still educating himself as he entered into a closed session related to other business. We all learned a lot tonight, he said. Asked if he would consider taking the initiative to introduce discussion on the matter, he added, I'm still thinking about it. I'll never shut the door. I can be convinced. The Cedar Falls crowd overflowed from the chambers into the outside foyer. The meeting marked the most amount of people to speak on a single subject since former Mayor Rob Green 
who happened to be in attendance early on for a different matter, since he initially declined to sign a resolution last May in support of Pride Month. The document's language mirrors the Iowa City and Coralville ceasefire resolutions, which passed 4-3 and 3-1 respectively, as well as those of other communities across the country. That text is similar to the resolution introduced by Representatives Corey Bush, a Democrat of Missouri, and Rashida Tlaib, a Democrat of Michigan, in the U.S. House of Representatives. Quote, I think it's clear from tonight that the community supports this ceasefire response, said Escalada afterwards. Others vowed not to give up and ensure their voices are heard at future meetings. Reached by telephone, Councilmember Chris Lada noted that he and his colleagues have done, quote, a lot of listening, understanding, and empathizing with the speakers and emphasized that none of them were, quote, invalidating their feelings. Nonetheless, he said, quote, I think the consensus of the group is that the resolution is not one for the city to make. He added that the council's lack of public response was pretty telling. It's important to listen and validate their concerns, but I think our job is to be the legislative body of Cedar Falls, and we're not legislating anything by issuing this resolution, unquote. Councilmember Kelly Dunn said in a television interview that she wants a ceasefire in the Middle East. I'll say that all day long. I don't want to take away from the importance of what's happening in Gaza, she said. Everybody should be paying attention to what's going on there. While open to learning and never say never on the possible resolution, Dunn is not interested at this time in initiating further discussion. She feels her energy and concentration is put is better put toward the city's own challenges. I don't think there's anything additional I could have added tonight to what the mayor said, Dunn noted. Other language in the resolution condemns the killing of the killings of civilians in Gaza and the West Bank by the state of Israel. It affirms a commitment to combat anti-Palestinian and anti-Arab language anti-Semitism, and Islamophobia. It also affirms support for people in Palestine, in Israel, to live in peace, and for local residents to live without intimidation, coercion, or the threat of violence. The resolution asks Iowa's congressional delegation to support ceasefire resolutions, affirm First Amendment rights for people to criticize the government, and support the delivery of immediate and sufficient humanitarian aid to non-combatant people of Gaza. A copy of the signed resolution would be provided to the legislature, Governor Kim Reynolds, Iowa's congressional delegation, and President Joe Biden. The Waterloo City Council dedicated part of its work session to discussing a potential ceasefire resolution. Abraham Funch S., the city's human rights director, was allotted 25 minutes to discuss with the council about why he and the Human Rights Commission believe such a resolution should come before a vote. The amount of time was not enough for council members and Funches. To finish a conversation, and another work session will be held. Funches said the resolution is pertinent to the city because it's in line with the International Human Rights Declaration the city makes annually that last, was last read in December. Although the local government may not physically be able to do anything regarding the war, he said it would be symbolic for the people who live here 
who have connections to Palestine and Israel. Ward 1 Councilmember John Child said, If this resolution passed, it would not achieve the goal of a ceasefire. Quote, I'm not wanting symbolic gestures. I want gestures that are solid and do something, he said. We can't do anything about this. We don't have the ability to. Ward 2 Councilmember Dave Bozen and at-large Councilmember Steve Simon both believe the resolution is not within the Council's purview. Simon said he commends Funches and the Commission for wanting peace, but Israel and Palestine have a long history of being at war. Waterloo is not going to be able to make a difference in the war, he said. During public comment at the Council meeting, six residents spoke about the resolution. Ted Laterman, the only resident against the agreement, said that asking for a ceasefire wouldn't result in anything, suggesting that Hamas broke previous ceasefire agreements. He also commented on others for calling the international conflict a genocide in previous council meetings. Quote, As an American Jew, I know that Israel and Jews never want to commit genocide against anyone, he said. His quote continues, I know that Israel does not commit genocide. Rahman who was among a member uh, excuse me who was among a number to attend the both the Waterloo and Cedar Falls council meetings said that although Waterloo's resolution wouldn't stop a war it would send a message to the state of Iowa and the US about the country's involvement she argued that without US involvement in the conflict the war would not be happening she estimated that Iowa's taxpayers have contributed more than $26 million for military aid in Israel. Amelia Gotera suggested those saying a ceasefire resolution is not the city's business are sending a negative message to Waterloo's Muslims and Arabs. Quote, passing it says to your people that we recognize your humanity, we recognize that you're here, and it's safe to grieve here, she said. And we'll turn the page. Stolen gun found at OWI stop. A Waterloo man was arrested after police found him with a stolen gun following a disturbance at Walmart. Officers arrested Krishan Lloyd Stuckey, age 42, of 505 Wellington Street for felon in possession of a firearm, second offense, operating while intoxicated, and fourth-degree theft. He was released pending trial. According to police, Staff at Walmart called police Friday to report that a man was harassing customers. Officers said the suspect drove off in a Dodge Durango, and the vehicle was stopped when police set up a roadblock at the San Marnin ramp onto Interstate Highway 380 a short time later. The vehicle backed into a squad car during the stop, according to court records. Inside the Durango, police found a 40 caliber pistol, that had been reported stolen in Waterloo in 2023, records state. Woman injured in accidental shooting. Police are investigating an accidental shooting that injured one woman at an apartment complex near Hawkeye Community College Tuesday morning. Paramedics and police were called to the address at the Hawkeye Towers apartments on Donegal Circle around 10.30 a.m. Found a woman with a single gunshot wound to her ankle. Paramedics with Waterloo Fire Rescue took her to Mercy One Waterloo Medical Center for treatment. 
Authorities say her injuries do not appear to be life-threatening. Police said the woman's boyfriend had another person's handgun in his pants pocket and the weapon accidentally fired, striking her. Next up, we have teens arrested for theft of PlayStation 5. Two teens have been arrested for allegedly using a handgun to steal a PlayStation 5 video game console from a Waterloo home. According to police, two people wearing masks forced their way into a home at 1115 Wellington Street shortly before midnight, January 21. One of the intruders was armed with a pistol, and they demanded the resident's PlayStation 5. The gunman put the weapon to the resident's chest and pulled the trigger, but the gun didn't fire. The attacker then began striking the victim, and they took the game console and fled. During the investigation, officers searched a home at 1017 Kimball Avenue, where they found the teen and a small 9mm pistol. Detectives also found video and digital information on the teen's phone, linking him to the robbery. Police arrested Cortlian Lavon Jones Jr., age 17, of Cedar Falls, on Friday for first-degree robbery and interference. He was charged as an adult. Bond was set at $100,000. A 14-year-old was also charged with first-degree robbery as a juvenile, according to police. Man arrested for alleged mail theft. Police have arrested a Waterloo man for allegedly stealing mail from numerous homes in April and May. Authorities allege that Jeffrey Lee Greider, age 34, used a debit card and balance transfer checks stolen from a mailbox to withdraw $220 from an ATM. Detectives got a break in the case when they recovered some of the missing mail, along with a pair of knit gloves in the area of Grand Boulevard and Niagara Drive. Tests later found DNA that linked Grider to the gloves, according to the court records. On Monday, Grider of 233 North Hackett Road was arrested for one count of forgery, nine counts of third-degree theft. Bond was set at $16,000. Grider was charged in connection with mail theft at homes on Lorna St- or excuse me, Loma Street, Lambeth Road, Castle Street, South Hackett Road, Lobdell Road, Rainbow Drive, Grand Boulevard, Four Seasons Drive, and Huntington Road. Grider is also awaiting trial on theft charges in connection with the May incident where police found a backpack containing a check that had been stolen from a mailbox and altered, according to uh, court records. Cedar Falls Pear awaits ruling on dog's fate. Dangerous animal is confined until appeal of kill order is decided. This is Dateline Cedar Falls. An allegedly dangerous dog will remain confined at the Cedar Bend Humane Society until a judge rules on the owner's appeal of a city decision to euthanize the beloved pet. An attorney for Chris and Lyanne Western proposed Monday during a video conference with a district judge and the city's council that Reese, their brown and white American bully dog, be subject to a lower bond amount or be allowed to stay at their relative's home at 1312 Clark Drive, the same place where the dog last got into trouble with the law. The one-hour hearing on the matter was set for 11 a.m. March 20. 
The Westerns argue the evidence did not prove the dog to be a public hazard and took issue with parts of the city's process that they deemed improper or illegal. The dog allegedly bit five strangers between May 2021 and October 2023 and has been confined at the Cedar Bend Humane Society on West Airline Highway since October 15th. Police Chief Mark Howard authorized putting the dog down, as is allowed under city code. The Westerns lost their first appeal to the Cedar Falls City Council. Council members voted 6-0 during a public meeting November 16 to uphold Howard's decision. Now, former council member Dave Sires was absent. Attorney Jamie Hunter of the Dickey Campbell and Sahag Law Firm in Des Moines said the city's request to continue holding the animal at an estimated cost of $4,610 is an unreasonable bond request. The couple was willing to provide additional written assurances for public safety if the dog is allowed to stay at the Clark Drive home. The dog would need to be inside. If outside, they said the pet would be roaming in a secured and enclosed fence under the supervision of an adult. The dog was already bound to an agreement before the fifth incident and the move to the Humane Society. The fourth incident led the chief to initially order the dog be humanely destroyed before instead entering the city into a contract with the Westerns. It outlined requirements for the dog to remain at home and that any future incident would automatically lead to its human or excuse me humane destruction. The fifth incident happened October 4 at the Clark Drive property. Reese reportedly went after a teenager biking on a sidewalk and bit him in the leg. Prior incidents have happened at the Western's home in the 1400 block of West 18th Street. Rather than an out-of-control vicious animal, the Westerns say the dog is being trained and would get excited or protective and bite people, but that the incidents were preventable and steps have, steps have been taken to make sure they don't happen again. The couple has racked up approximately $2,200 in charges to date for holding the dog at the Humane Society. The city estimates that they will be on the hook for another 2400 over some 120 days at $20 per day. A reasonable boarding fee should not exceed $10, Hunter argued, or in lieu of that payment, the attorney said the dog could be kept at the Clark Drive home. The judge sided with the city's attorneys, Austin McMahon and Henry Bevel, of Swisher and Court in Waterloo. Quote, the court finds the city's request to continue boarding Reese at the Cedar Bend Humane Society as in the best interest of public safety at this time, and further that the costs incurred to date have been reasonable and necessary, said Judge David Odekirk in his order, written order made Monday after the hearing. Also in the, the order was this quote, the court further finds continued boarding costs at $20 per day are both reasonable and necessary, unquote. Both sides agreed to a, quote, expedited schedule and the March 20 hearing date, which Oda Kirk may preside over. The court found a reasonable bond, $3,400, to be based on an additional 60 days of boarding. 
that's $1,200 more than the $2,200 in expenses already accrued. Man rescued at Cedar Falls Park. Firefighters pull an ice fisherman from the lake. And there's a photo of a uh, gentleman um, holding on in hunting gear, holding on to a floaty in the water, and a firefighter behind him. Cedar Falls firefighters rescued a fisherman who broke through the ice at Prairie Lakes Park on Tuesday afternoon. Witnesses said the angler appeared to have been returning to shore with a sled of equipment on the lower lake shortly after 4 p.m. when he crashed through the thinning ice. One person at the park attempted to call 911 but wasn't able because the U.S. cellular network was down. Others were able to get their calls through to dispatchers. Passersby said the man was in the water, clinging to the ice on the side of the hole and yelling for help. Police, firefighters, and paramedics arrived a short time later and used a plastic rescue sled attached to a rope to reach the man. He was loaded onto the sled, which was then reeled in by a team on the shore. The man was conscious, alert, and talking, and he was taken to a nearby hospital for treatment. And that's the halfway point of today's reading for, of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Thursday, February 8th. You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped, and I'm your reader, Mary Frances. And now we'll take a look at our obituaries in the paper today, and then get back to news after that. Fred E. Jean Eilers, that's E-H-L-E-R-S, age 74, of Independence, passed away Friday, February 2nd, at his home in rural Independence. Funeral service, 10.30 a.m. Monday, February 5th, so it's already occurred at Independence. Susan Metz Chilcott died Christmas morning, 2023, in Falls Church, Virginia, at the age of 80. A celebration of life uh, is being planned for a later date. Carolyn J. Mum Harkin Hackwell, age 84, of Jessup, passed away Monday, February 5, at her home following a sudden illness. Funeral services, Saturday, February 10, 10.30 a.m., at the First Presbyterian Church in Jessup. Burial will take place Sunday, February 11, at uh, the Cedar Crest Cemetery in Jessup. Visitation, Friday, February 9, at the White Funeral Home in Jessup. It will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. and will also take place an hour before services Saturday at the church. Richard Lewis Monson, age 77, died Friday, January 26th. Uh, funeral services are being planned for the spring. Interment will take place at the Mount Hope Cemetery in Nyman, Iowa. Our next obituary is Wanda Lee Burroughs, age 81, of Sumner. Passed away Saturday evening, February 3rd, at home, surrounded by family. Funeral services, Saturday, February 10, 10.30 a.m. at the St. John Lutheran Church in Sumner. Visitation, Friday, February 9, at the St. John Lutheran Church from 4 to 7 and for one hour preceding the uh, services at the church on Saturday. Leola Lee 
Lenahan, age 87, of Waterloo, passed away Sunday, February 4, at the Cedar Valley Hospice Home. Um, massive Christian Burial, Saturday, February 10, 10 a.m., at the St. Edward Catholic Church, with burial at Mount Olive Cemetery to follow. There will be a public visitation Friday, February 9, from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Haggerty Wakehoff Group Funeral Service on West Ridgeway, where there will be a 4 p.m. Catholic Daughters of the American uh, of the Americas Rosary. Visitation will continue for one hour before services at the church on Saturday. There are there is no opinion page today, so I'll go back into just basic news stories. Roundabout proposed at Hammond in Ridgeway. City officials are hoping to install another roundabout, but will first have to conduct a traffic study to see if it's feasible. The City Council on Monday approved a $7,000 professional services agreement with ISG Inc. for an analysis of the intersection at Hammond and Ridgeway Avenues. The analysis will determine if a roundabout would fit at the location and vehicles can be easily accommodated. The study will be paid for with existing general obligation bond funds. In other business, the council approved a $995,697 contract with Peters Construction to renovate the restrooms at the Waterloo Convention Center. The project includes interior renovations of the four existing public restrooms to add more bathroom fixtures and update the finishes. A family restroom would also be added as well as a multi-purpose room. The Waterloo Company is expected to complete the work by this fall. The Council also approved a development and minimum assessment agreement with Back Alley Printers, Inc., part of Dignity Apparel, LLC, to remodel a building at 2975 Airline Circle with an assessed value of $2.1 million. The business would receive rebates of 50% for 10 years. The company is expected to bring in at least 40 new jobs with the renovation. And tax exemptions for eight new twin homes at Prairie Meadows Estates. Joe Robson Rentals, LLC, will receive 100% tax exemption for three years because the homes are in the city limit, urban revitalization area. Our next story, former Iowa Ag Secretary Northey dies at 64. Bill Northey, who was Iowa's top agriculture official for more than a decade and a leader at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, died recently at the age of 64. His death was publicly announced Monday by the Agribusiness Association of Iowa, of which he was chief executive. Quote, Bill was a tireless advocate for agriculture and a beloved leader, the association said. An association spokesperson said, Northey died suddenly, but did not know the cause of death. Funeral arrangements are pending. Northey, a longtime farmer who was Iowa's Agriculture Secretary from 2007 to 2018, after which he was Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation at the USDA until 2021. He was an Iowa State University graduate who was raised on a farm in Dickinson County, according to the association. He was president of the National Corn Growers Association in the mid-90s, and a decade later, 
was first elected Agriculture Secretary for Iowa. Quote, Bill was a great leader whose work ethic and passion for Iowa agriculture was unmatched, said Governor Kim Reynolds in a statement. Iowans and farmers around the world were fortunate to have such a rock-solid advocate and friend. Reynolds ordered flags at half-staff until after Northeast's funeral. Numerous public officials and agriculture groups heaped praise on Northey on Monday. U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack said, Bill's colleagues, the Iowa agriculture community, and so many who knew him will feel the absence of such a passionate, knowledgeable, and devoted leader for a long time to come. Mike Nag, or Nyag, the current state agriculture secretary, said, As secretary, he had a tremendously positive impact on our state and the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship, but his influence went well beyond our borders, whether it was on issues like soil conservation, water quality, renewable energy, foreign animal disease preparedness, or trade, Bill was respected nationally and internationally. Bill was smart, and people looked toward his leadership on every issue he focused on. U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley said, Today the Iowa farm community lost a giant. Bill Northey was a dear friend and a fierce advocate for the family farmer. As Iowa's Secretary of Agriculture and Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation at the U.S. Department of Agriculture under President Trump, Bill's commitment to agriculture, biofuels, and conservation were unmatched. Jeff Kaufman, chairman of the Iowa Republican Party, or Republican Party of Iowa, rather, said, His legacy extends far beyond the boundaries of his political office. Bill's warmth, approachability, and genuine concern for the well-being of this state and Iowans will be his legacy. The Iowa Farm Bureau Federation said, The Iowa Farm Bureau is saddened to learn of the passing of Bill Northey, a tireless champion, defender, and promoter of farmers and agriculture at both the state and federal levels. His steadfast dedication and life's work to ensuring agriculture thrives will continue to impact farm families here in Iowa and across the nation for years to come. Monty Shaw, Executive Director of the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association said, Bill has always been a thoughtful but forceful leader for farmers in rural America. He was an incredible friend to ethanol and biodiesel producers because he saw the big picture. This wasn't just about turning a profit. This was about preserving a way of rural life. And U.S. Senator Joni Ernst said, Bill Northey dedicated his life to Iowa agriculture. Throughout his career as a farmer, leader in key agriculture organizations, Iowa Secretary of Agriculture, and U.S. Department of Agriculture Undersecretary, he was a steadfast advocate for the producers that feed and fuel our world. He helped establish Iowa as a national leader on key initiatives, including ethanol and the nutrient reduction strategy, while always remaining grounded and connected to his family farm in Dickinson County. Our next story, Waverly Eyes Outsourcing Engineering Services. Challenging budget discussions seeped into the City Council's deliberations Monday on a flurry of engineering-related approvals. The administration is reviewing its engineering department to see if more positions and services, like inspections, should be outsourced, leading resident John Meyer to express concerns on three occasions 
about how that impacts the resolutions the council later unanimously approved, including ones for, and now we have a bullet list, plans and the award of the Rolling Hills Water Main Loop Project to Denver Underground and Grading Incorporated of Denver for $54,056. Our next bullet, plans and the award of Baskin's Trail Bridge Replacement Project to Peterson Contractors, Inc. of Rhinebeck for $654,896. Our next bullet, an agreement with WHKS and Company of Mason City for up to $36,500 for services having to do primarily with construction and engineering services related to the structural elements of Baskin Trails Bridge. Our next bullet, an agreement with the WHKS and Company for up to $8,300 for the Adams Parkway Bridge inspection. The Council held a meeting Saturday, one of two lengthy public sessions thus far on the proposed fiscal year 2025 budget and addressed a number of areas that may be further outsourced. Another was legal services, since City Attorney Bill Werger is months away from retirement. Some of the challenges have to do with state limitations on municipalities' ability to tax and raise revenues. City Administrator James Bronner said the rollback, the percentage of a property's assessed value that can be taxed, is, quote, what did the worst damage. In the current budget cycle, municipalities are faced with a 54.65% rollback for residential properties, but that will go to 46.34% in the next year, which is the largest drop in some time. Quote, there will be some inspection done by some staff. We're still working through what that looks like, what the position is, said Bronner on Monday, in response to Meyer's concerns about the Baskin Trail Creek project. Quote, we're well aware of the concerns, but we're still working through that issue, as we said, and we have WHKS to fall back on, he added. There's funding secured for that if need be so, so I'm not concerned about the project going forward, unquote. Meyer said he confirmed that engineering staff had been properly or had been placed on leave. That could not be immediately confirmed by the courier. Bronner had said Saturday that some staff had been placed on administrative leave to help address some of the challenges, some relating to inflation, but did not specify from which department. The council must approve a budget prior to April 30th. The new fiscal year begins July 1. And I'll turn over to sports for some local sports. Play ball. And there's a large photo of um, a young woman running around third base on the way to scoring against Drake back in April. And it says, play ball, MVC favorite, UNI, set to open season inside the Unidome. Ryan Jacobs could not joke about the weather as Northern Iowa prepares for the beginning of softball season. A joke about the cold weather or lack of softball weather in Cedar Falls would be the perfect opener for the Panthers softball coach before discussing the season ahead. Sands his normal opener, Jacob cuts right to the chase and said he wants to see his team get out to a faster start. With the 2024 Doc Halverson UNI Dome Classic this weekend, quote, our biggest challenge right now 
is that we want to change the momentum in the dome, Jacob said. In the last three years, I think we've only won maybe two or three games, the opening weekends. Yes, they've been very good competition, but we have seen what we've done after that weekend. So it's been a very early wake-up call, and we want to change that trend this year. Since 2021, the Panthers own a 4-10 record in the Unidome, despite finishing in first place in the Missouri Valley Conference in 2022 and 2023, second place in 2021. Quote, that experience of the last three years, I think, I think they can pull from and be motivated to get a little bit start, Jacob said. We do not want to peak. That's not the goal. It's just get off to a faster start. The biggest thing is taking what we have and doing in practice to the field, unquote. Catcher Alexis Pupolo, the 2023 MVC Freshman of the Year, said the Panthers are excited to open the 2024 season. We've all been working really hard together as a team, she said. Comparing to last year, we've all just been working really hard. All of us are super ready to get out there. We are just so looking forward to getting out there and letting loose and having a whole bunch of fun. The sophomore from Crystal Lake, Illinois, added that, beyond results, UNI needs to focus on controlling its controllables. We should just be focusing on ourselves, Pupilo said, and focusing on what we can and cannot control. We can control our energy and our effort. We can control our habits and what we do every day. I think that's probably the most crucial part, just focusing on ourselves and not going to look for the outcome first because before we've done what is within the process. Though it ruined his opener, the unseasonably warm weather in Cedar Falls over the past two weeks aided the Panthers' preparation ahead of the tournament, allowing UNI to prepare on turf earlier than previous seasons. It will be a unique start for us, Jacobs said. We'll have more turf time than we ever have, which will hopefully eliminate some anxiety some of the players have. As soon as that turf goes down on Thursday, it's, it is like get as many ground balls as you possibly can. It wears them out that Thursday, so hopefully this year it will be a little easier transition when the turf goes down. According to Jacobs, the Panthers also need to take greater advantage of the situations and the turf surface presented by the temporary softball field at the Unidome. Obviously, we have to do a better job of hitting line drives and ground balls, Jacobs said. We've hit some well-hit balls, but the fences have to go back so far compared to what we are normally going to see at every other facility. So we end up hitting balls right at the fence and not getting much out of it. That translates when we get outside and we get to those other places. But in the dome, for us to be successful, we have to focus on hitting more line drives. That will be the focus for us. He also noted that the Panthers will need their pitching staff to hit the ground running, which has not always been the case in previous years. Last season, Jacobs said the Panthers did not do enough to earn an at-large bid to the NCAA tournament after posting a 13-11 record in the non-conference portion of their schedule, despite winning the MVC with a 26-1 conference mark. Thus, you and I assembled a more daunting non-conference schedule this season, which includes games against number 20 Auburn twice, number 14 Alabama, number 17 Nebraska, and number 12 Arkansas. 
I do not think I need to do too much talking now, Jacob said. They know who it's going to be. Last year, we didn't set ourselves up for success going into the league because of the strength of our schedule. So this year, that was the adjustment we needed to make. According to Jacobs, the Panthers should be able to lean on their experience. UNI features a nine-person senior class, including preseason, all MVC honorees, Samantha Heyer, Madison Parks, and Taylor Hogan. Heyer enters the season, 2024 season that is, as the reigning MVC pitcher of the year after posting a 2.06 ERA, 267 strikeouts, and four shutouts, including one perfect game in 38 appearances. Behind Heyer, UNI has three other options in the circle, with redshirt sophomore Anna Wischknowski earning the number two spot. Wischnowski recorded 16 appearances last season, posted a 3-2 record and a 4.19 ERA. Jacob spoke highly of the Trevor Wisconsin products finished to the season. We were in a position where we could give her a start and see what she could do, Jacob said. And she went a complete game, shut them out, and just had a great experience with her in the late season. To see her to be able to go through these challenges throughout the year, get an opportunity late and go out there and perform well was great to see. She's been competing really well against our hitters in January. I'm anxious to see what happens when we go up against somebody else. And that's all the time we have for the Cedar Falls Waterloo Courier for Thursday, February 8th, 2024. I've been your reader, Mary Francis, and you've been listening to Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Handicapped. It's been my pleasure to read for you today. Have a great day.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Since the dawn of humankind, people have used caves to explore, hold religious ceremonies, create art, or avoid the dangers of weather and predators. Partly because of that, they continue to fascinate scientists today. To create a cave, Mother Nature needs three things. Water, rock that can be dissolved by it, and lots of time. Rainwater, as it falls through the atmosphere, picks up carbon from CO2 to become a weak carbonic acid. By the time it hits Earth, it's about as acidic as coffee. As it percolates through the soil, it picks up more carbon from decaying plants, becoming a slightly stronger acid. If the rock below the soil is limestone, gypsum, or dolomite, the water can dissolve along tiny cracks. Over many thousands of years, the cracks become channels, then tunnels, and could eventually become caverns. Water might also mix with hydrogen sulfide gas seeping up from natural oil and gas deposits to form sulfuric acid, which can also dissolve the rock. Protected from daily and seasonal changes on the surface, caves can maintain a stable temperature and humidity. In these delicate environments, the remains of ancient animals and humans, which could have quickly decayed on the surface, have been preserved for millennia. Deeper, more isolated caves have preserved bacteria and microbes undisturbed for millions of years. These qualities make caves important sites for researchers, natural time capsules. There's probably an amazing cave near you, so take a trip and get to know your Earth. I'm Scott Tinker, dissolving mysteries on Earth Date. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.